You see a 9-9. Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! You're listening to a podcast from key moments in Cold War sports history, a series showcasing the work of expert sports historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'm hosting the series, exploring how sport became a frontier in an era of superpower politics and intense international competition. There are more than 30 podcasts in our series now, which you can listen to on iTunes and Stitcher. They're curated by Laura Deal at the Wilson Centre in Washington. Please feel free to rate and review them. Follow us on Twitter at CWIHP and hashtag Cold War Sport. And thanks to our regular listeners for their positive feedback. Faster, higher, stronger, that's the motto of the Olympics, urging athletes to strive ever harder to improve their sporting efforts. But Mark Dyerson, a historian at Penn State University in America, believes the Olympics, since their earliest days, have been an opportunity to sell lifestyle, and a Californian lifestyle at that, and alongside that, to sell products, Mark. Yes, I think it's much easier to see in the 21st century the influence of California-style culture on the Olympic Games. If you look at the new action sports that dominate the Olympics now, the winter and summer games sometimes, triathlon, beach volleyball, snowboarding, mountain biking, all of these sports were actually invented and incubated in California. They are often considered transnational, not rooted in any particular culture, but in a sort of middle-class lifestyle that everyone in the globe wants, but in actuality, they're products of California. And they've been well-designed to sell lifestyle in a variety of ways, from clothing and gear to attitudes to expectations. I see where you're coming from, Mark, but do you have any evidence of this? I do think I have evidence. Uh, I think it starts in the 1920s when the president of the United States Olympic Committee said that basically the fundamental duty of sending American teams overseas was to sell the United States to the rest of the world, which he meant both literally and metaphorically. American sporting good manufacturers had, like A.G. Spaulding had always supported the Olympics, had always used the Olympics as a moment to advertise and sell gear. And then the 20s, those efforts multiplied because a consortium of sporting goods producers went to the federal government of the United States and spoke to uh, a man who would soon be the president of the United States, Herbert Hoover, who was the Secretary of Commerce. Uh, And they asked Hoover, who went to college at Stanford, and although he was from Iowa originally, really began his political and business career in California and had deep roots there. Uh, They went to Herbert Hoover and they said, what we want is to you, you to use the power of the federal government to open up foreign markets to us. And so Hoover and the departments of state and commerce do these grand surveys. They see the upcoming Los Angeles Olympic games, which were the brainchild of a California real estate developer who planted palm trees, not a native species to Southern California, the, now the ubiquitous symbol of Cal, Southern California, 
uh, Oliver Wilshire Boulevard and the rest of his real estate holdings to get the world interested in this rising new city, which had been uh, just a hamlet before that. Uh, they got the federal government to do surveys of how could they sell goods and products uh, overseas, for sporting goods, American-built sporting goods and products overseas. And what they discovered was essentially that by the 1920s, it was going to be very difficult because the sport most uh, identified as the biggest pastime among the masses around the world was not an American sport. It was not American football or American baseball um, or American basketball. It was association football. And so the State Department decided instead that a better strategy than trying to convert the world away from soccer football to American sports that that just wasn't going to work uh, given the, the, the penetration of the British Empire in the 19th century. A better way to do it was for the United States to glom on to what seemingly were universal lifestyles, swimming for instance, uh, and market them uh, in a in a California way. Uh, California was already the center of American swimming culture, had produced fashions, had invented the backyard swimming pool. And so then what better way to do that through this global sport that seemingly was free of direct claims of American imperialism. It's not like exporting baseball or basketball because everyone swims around the world. What better way to spread American influence than through swimming? And so they turn Johnny Weissmuller into a global icon. What I've called Californication or Californization. And Weissmuller, born in probably Romania, grew up in Pennsylvania and then Illinois, but spends the rest of his life in Hollywood. He migrates there after his Olympic medals, becomes the, the, the symbol in some ways of American cinema as Tarzan the Ape Man. Uh, and we get then process after process, story after story of how important California is both within the United States and shaping expectations about what the Olympics are and providing products to the rest of the nation and in the rest of the world that the United States wants to promote these lifestyle notions that everyone deserves sunshine, a little cottage near the beach, a swimming pool in their backyard, uh, leisure wear to, to walk around in, uh, sunglasses, Hawaiian shirts, which are really invented in California. Uh, and the Olympics become a forum for selling those notions to the rest of the world, as we see today in these action sports. But between the LA Games and the Cold War, there's a world war. There is indeed a world war, and that world war within the United States makes California the center of national culture. When we talk about the rise of the Sun Belt and the influence of California in uh, the aerospace industry, in, in, in the military-industrial complex, a lot of that movement takes place in the Second World War, where California is the staging ground for the war in the Pacific, becomes larger and more powerful. After the 32 games, in fact, the organizing committee, which is a, a group of Los Angeles boosters in Hollywood, like uh, Samuel Goldwyn of, of MGM, um, of real estate agents, uh, of 
lawyers, of bankers, uh, of newspaper editors stays intact and continues to bid and plan bids for the Olympic Games. So even during World War II where there's not Olympic Games, there's a group in Los Angeles sitting around and scheming how quickly can they get the Olympics back to California, back to Los Angeles or maybe to San Francisco, but back to the West Coast. During those war years, though, Hollywood is turning out all the films. And Hollywood was a part of the 32 bid, so uh, a lot of Hollywood moguls in that era were on the Los Angeles committee. They sent their contract players into the Olympic Village for um, promotional reasons to take pictures and do shorts with athletes. They're looking for the next Johnny Weissmuller, in fact, Buster Crab, who becomes um, Flash Gordon, is discovered at the, another swimmer is discovered at the 32 LA Olympic uh, Games. And so Hollywood's presence is all over the Olympics. Part of the reason Los Angeles, in addition to good uh, real estate propaganda and palm trees is able to get the IOC to go to LA is because of Hollywood and the movie industry that's burgeoning in the 1920s and the 1930s and then through, throughout the Second World War. By the end of the war, the United States is a superpower economically and militarily, but also culturally. Its products, the films of Walt Disney, uh, the films of Johnny Weissmuller, are global products that everyone around the world knows. And Los Angeles is partly identified uh, as a major player in the world because it had been a th an Olympic city in 32, and people remember that. In terms of your theory then, we move from the World War, which ends in 45, to the Cold War, which some have placed here around 48. Where would you place it? I would place it actually in, with, within the World War when the alliance between the Soviet Union and the United States clearly shows signs of strain and the, uh, it's not a surprise to anyone that after the war the, the interests of the two remaining superpowers don't match with one another. And so the very mechanisms that were marshaled for propaganda reasons in the United States during the Second World War to sell World War II, Hollywood. Uh, are marshaled in the Cold War, a war fought mainly without bullets, with propaganda. Uh, the U.S. had already been doing this in California during the Second World War, and so it was easy, uh, since that's the center of the culture production industry in the United States, for Hollywood to convert to uh, promoting U.S. interests during the Cold War. And what are the values that Hollywood is giving out in the Cold War? The values that Hollywood is giving out are once again the, those sort of lifestyle values in some ways that were featured during uh, the 1920s and the 1930s. Images of California as a utopia, as a golden land that anyone would want to come to. Images of affluence, images of freedom for individuals to live the life they want, uh, of immigrants making good, like Johnny Weissmuller, an immigrant made good who becomes Tarzan, that America was the land of opportunity and the most opportune land in America was California. And the coke and the jeans and the 
Right. In cigarettes, fact, small brew cigarettes. In in fact, uh, those kinds of American consumer products. Now, Coca Cola is is a little bit different. That's a Southern product in Atlanta. But it, take the take the blue jeans. The blue jeans are a classic example of Californication. They're invented by Levi Strauss and Company in the 19th century as work clothes for miners in the California gold fields. So Levi Strauss the the, the most ubiquitous maker of blue jeans in the world um, is headquartered in California. In the um, 1950s and 1960s and 1970s, the blue jean begins to become the symbol of the California lifestyle, not the repressive clothes of an older generation, the man in the gray flannel suit look, but the new, freer, uh, more expressive style of uh, blue jeans, the pair of California sunglasses, and maybe a Hawaiian shirt that mark you uh, as a successful person in the youth culture that's emerging in the United States and elsewhere in the affluent West during the Cold War. You mentioned youth culture there, so that's all tied up in this. It's the creation of a youth culture in the United States. A youth culture they export to the world, uh, not just to the United States, that you know the focus in, in Hollywood is on beauty, uh, youth, health, vigor, uh, old people need not apply, right? They rarely appear in Hollywood films anyway. And so the United States has, has managed to sort of harness that as part of its uh, quest in the Cold War to appeal to the globe's uh, desiring masses. What's wrong with that? I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. What I do think happens is that uh, people take it for granted or don't look underneath at how clever Hollywood is in marketing these images. In fact, I think it was, in many ways, it's a grand strategy in the Cold War to focus on affluence. It was the American strategy for much, for much of the Cold War. So back to our ubiquitous blue jeans. What the United States could do by marketing California in the Cold War was to contrast uh, empty Soviet stores that don't even have toilet paper with images of Soviet teams and Eastern Germ East German teams and Czech teams coming to the United States trying to buy blue jeans uh, to look like Americans, to be like Americans, and Americans are willingly selling them these things creating the desire which uh, American cold warriors think is going to erode faith in Marxist-Leninist uh, ideology that somehow holding out images of ab abundance will be enough to make the people behind the Iron Curtain rise up against their leaders and their ideology and become like the United States. The blue jeans become a symbol in the cold war uh, the desires of people behind the Iron Curtain to be more like people in the West, in Great Britain or the United States, as do rock and roll music, Hollywood films, a variety of other products. But the blue jeans are really interesting. If you recall, Jimmy Carter was the president that popularized blue jeans. He wore them, wore them to his one and only inaugural as a sign he was a common man. He was with the youth. He got it. He was a part of the revolutionary generation. In 1980, Levi Strauss and company had a major deal with the Moscow Olympics to provide all 23,000 Soviet laborers building the Olympic Games with a pair of blue jeans and a lot of them with a denim jacket as well. 
the day after Jimmy Carter announced the boycott um, was going to take place in February of 1980, Levi Strauss announced the deal was off. No games, no blue jeans, they told the Soviets. That's what you get for not playing fair. And so in one of the great ironies of the Cold War, why the Soviet government would ever have allowed Levi Strauss to outfit 23,000 workers with free jeans as a sort of capitalist advertising ploy, I've never understood. But that shows the power of California-style culture in international propaganda in the 1980s and its connection to the Olympic Games. And terrific marketing as well. Absolutely terrific marketing by Levi Strauss, which could then save the, the cost of 23,000 pairs of Levi 501s or what have you uh, and make their case that they, they were not just the global corporation but staunch defenders of the American way of life and standing up uh, with Jimmy Carter to the Soviets. Coca-Cola, another major Olympic sponsor, which was much slower on the uptake uh, and didn't join Carter's boycott quite as quickly and got much criticized in the West for consorting with communists in the midst of this tense situation. Because if you can tap into the Olympics, you're tapping into a global brand. You're a huge global brand. In fact, contemporary studies show that the most trusted symbol uh, of corporate logos in the late 20th and 21st century is the five Olympic rings. And so uh, every major corporation wants a piece of that action. It confers notions of youth and beauty, of human excellence, of honesty, integrity, in spite of the scandals on products. And so corporate sponsorship, another connection to Californization that really takes off in Los Angeles in 1984 is a part of the story as well, as the Olympic movement itself, the IOC, gets Californicated. Would you say then that America, and in fact American manufacturers, won the psychological Cold War? Well, I think given the number of blue jeans around the world, you, you could make that argument, you could make that case that... Uh, uh, Americans won the lifestyle competition, that the music the world listens to, uh, the t television programs they watch, the movies they take a look at, uh, the games they play, the clothes they wear are the symbols of a California-style uh, version uh, of the American way of life. So I think they were geniuses at marketing their products through the Olympics and other mechanisms. So to you, really, the Cold War was a, a battle of commercialization. It was, from the vantage of the United States, a battle, a quest for the hearts and minds of consumers, ultimately. And what American corporations figured out was how to build the products consumers really wanted. They didn't want Soviet-era automobiles and and uh, knockoff blue jeans produced in Siberia, what they wanted was true California products. Uh, Levi jeans, microcomputers, uh, Beach Boys music, Hawaiian shirts, um, the summer of love, all that goes with that. That's what they were enamored of, both behind the Iron Curtain and everywhere else around the world. There have been many debates about the commercialization of the Olympics. I guess in, in your world, there's no question about that. 
There, there is no question. I think the Olympics have long been commercialized. They're just commercialized now in new and different ways. And I'm not disappointed necessarily about the changes. What sometimes troubles me is when these alterations masquerade in beyond historical notions as if these new games that are played at the Olympics like mountain biking and beach volleyball and snowboarding have no roots in a particular culture. They just sort of sprang fully formed as the common property of contemporary global youth culture. Uh, I'm enamored of sports with histories, of association football, of track and field, of wrestling that have deep roots in antiquity in the Olympic Games. I just want, I would want to point out to people who have fallen in love with these new adventure sports that they have a particular location as well, and that's California after the Second World War uh, in this affluent phase in the Cold War and beyond. That's where these sports were invented. That's where they have their roots. That's the shapes and form they take. And so uh, while as a consumer I wear Levi's, I want consumers to be aware of the culture they're consuming. And do you think those modern sports lack authenticity, that they're in some way manufactured by the manufacturers? I don't necessarily think so, because um, sports, modern sports in particular, like soccer, football, have always been commercialized. Professional soccer develops fairly quickly. Uh, the people that invented it in Great Britain um, very early saw marketing opportunities to sell rule books, to sell jerseys, to sell specialized shoes, to sell balls that were manufactured uh, in the industrial plants of Great Britain. And they spread those products around the world and had enormous success, I think, uh, in influencing the rest of the globe. The argument by some historians is that uh, the varieties of football and cricket were, are the most enduring exports of the uh, British Empire, maybe snowboarding and beach volleyball will be the most enduring exports of the American Empire. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Deal.